welcome to RUF. Thanks for coming out um, to a kind of a weird place. I actually really like this room. Is it weird for you to be in here because it's like you're in class? Yeah? It's like anatomy. Yeah. Anatomy is happening, which is ironic because we're going to talk about some anatomy tonight. Um, but anyway, welcome to RUF. A special welcome to you if it's your first time or one of your first times here. Um, please let me or someone else know how we can be helpful to you. Um, we hope that you will find this uh, a safe place for you, whether you're a Christian and you're looking for a place to rest and hear the gospel, or whether you're trying to figure this whole um, Jesus thing out, or you're not sure, or you just came with your roommate, or whatever. We're really happy to have you here, and we're really thankful that you can be our guest tonight. Um, we're going to be in First Thessalonians, which is in the New Testament, in some of those shorter little books that are in the back. If you keep flipping around, you'll find it. Um, or you can look on your handout. Uh, it's printed there as well. This semester we've been going through um, something called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is this sort of ancient summary of what the Christian faith is. And so we're drawn here near to the end here. and you, you, It's actually printed in your handout. And we're, uh, we're down to there to the bottom where it says the resurrection of the body. And we're talking about tonight, what does it mean to believe that our bodies are going to be resurrected? What's that all about? Um, uh, it, I... It might seem fairly obvious. I'm not a great reader of Shakespeare. Um, I uh, am familiar with Romeo and Juliet, like that that's a thing, and kind of familiar with the basic plot points, as I think many of us are. And um, But I have seen the 1997 Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet um, with Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's a classic. It's a 90s classic. It's actually really good if you've never seen it. It's, it's not. Someone said it's not. Come on, Blair. We'll talk. We'll talk. Um, but it sort of combines modern 90s weird life with all the Shakespearean stuff. Anyway, um, but there's a character in, in Romeo and Juliet named Mercutio. And Mercutio is Romeo's friend. Maybe if you know this, if you read it. Mercutio is actually, by far and away, the most interesting character in Romeo and Juliet. He's the most um, sort of robust. He's the funniest. He's, he's the easiest person to like. And um, if, if you know if you, if you know about Romeo and Juliet, uh, Mercutio ends up being killed by a guy named Tybalt in the story, and it sort of sets Romeo off, and he goes nuts, he kills Tybalt, he gets exiled, and I think we know how the rest of the story um, plays out. <laughs> they both die. Um, it was written 400 years ago, so not really much of a spoiler alert. But anyway, um, Mercutio in, in, in Shakespeare's earlier drafts actually was never killed. But what Shakespeare realized about Mercutio is that he was more complex than Romeo, and he was more likable than Romeo. And actually, as a character, he was so much stronger than the main character and sort of the main plot that he, in some ways, took away and took focus away from the main story. And so he actually killed Mercutio, in a sense, to avoid from killing the story, right? Because he'd be like, oh, Romeo died, whatever, but Mercutio's still around. He's great. Um, There are some characters, like if you've ever watched Friday Night Lights... Um, Tim Riggins, okay, is a beautiful man, and he's actually so likable that at, at, at some points, like, you only care what happens to Tim Riggins. You don't really care what's going on with Coach Taylor and the whole story. Or if you watch Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon, you know, um, he's, like, the best character, but he's not the main character. And there are these characters they sort of take away, in, in a sense, they're so strong that they can take your focus off the main, the hero and the main story And this week and next week, we're going to be looking at the end of the story of what God is doing in time. 
that starting at the creation, God started this story, mankind fell into sin, and he's redeeming us, and there's this happy ending, this happily ever after of us being with Jesus forever and being perfect and happy. And um, we're going to look at, look at the, that the next two weeks. But the thing, this is what, like Mercutio, like Daryl, like Tim Riggins, there are things in our lives, our daily lives seem so strong to us that the, the things that happen take our eyes off of the main story and the hero of the story who's Jesus. And they actually seem more real to us. And what I'm hoping will happen is as we look at where we're headed at the end of the story, that we'll be filled with hope and actually turn our gaze to Jesus and see him as the main character in this narrative and maybe not ourselves, our own lives. So tonight we're going to look at what happens to us when we die. And next week we're going to look at what is going to happen at the end of the world. Okay, so big stuff. So if you'll read with me, we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 4. You can just read on your handout. Um, but we should give our attention because this is God's word. So let's listen to it. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. That's kind of sounds like an archangel. Anyway, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Summer. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask his blessing. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for the ungodly, and that you have moved toward us, and you have found us, and you have rescued us, and you've not left us alone, but Lord, you've given us yourself, and um, Lord, thank you that we can be found in you, and that you're coming again uh, to rescue us. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you attend to it? And a person who is very flawed and very much struggles to believe these things, would you um, help me to be uh, helpful in explaining it? Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So really pretty basic tonight. We're talking about what is this resurrection of the body that the Apostles' Creed talks about. And um, really, all I want to break it down is to say, what happens to us when we die? Or what, more specifically, what happens to believers when they die? And then why does that matter for you here, not in anatomy, but yet in IG Greer as students at App? So, is that, it's me doing that? Man, I'm going to be hearing that sound of my dreams tonight. Um, So, what happens just when we die? When God created human beings, speaking of anatomy, humans are made of two parts. God created us in two parts. He created us to have a body. And he created us with a soul. That's what it means to be a human being, that you have these two things 
in, inside of you. They're part, they're integral to who you are. And it, were you to be missing one of those things, you would not actually really be human. Um, there's the physical body. And I think we're all pretty familiar with what that is, the things that we can touch, taste, and see. Um, but there's also this realm, and, you know, in the world there's these physical things, but we also are aware of this realm, this spiritual realm um, that is around us when we hear music and we're moved by it, that it's not just this mixing of chemicals in, in our brain, but it's actually something bigger than us, though it's unseen. My, my wife, my daughter asked me um, regularly, what, what's a ghost? You know, what's a spirit? I say, well, it's a person that doesn't have a body, right? Um, we're bodies and souls, and that's how God has created us. And there's no separating those two things. There's no getting your spirit outside of your body except for at death. Um, what Paul is getting at here and the way what, what happens when we die is that our body is separated from our soul. If you look on your handout, there's two questions there at the bottom. Um, these questions are for something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism doesn't really matter what that is. It's, it's sort of a summary of what the Bible teaches in a question and answer format. But I put it in there because I thought it was helpful. Because the question there is, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And it says, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. At our death for believers, and when I say a believer, I say a Christian. I don't mean someone that has their stuff figured out. I don't mean someone that just sort of walks the walk and does Christian-y things or wears Christian t-shirts, listens to Christian music, comes to RUF. I don't mean a good person. I mean someone that has recognized that they have a need in Jesus and they have gone to Jesus and said, Lord, will you help me? Will you save me? That's what a Christian is. Um, so a believer, when a believer dies, the body stays here and, this, and our soul goes to be with the Lord. Uh, in a sense, it's perfected, that, that our soul becomes perfect. As of now, our bodies and our souls are both fairly imperfect. But our soul goes to be with the Lord, and it's perfected with Him, and our body stays here. But since we live in the world, this is why I was talking about the stuff, this Mercutio stuff, these, these side characters that distract from the main story. All we know as people that live in the world with death is the loss. All we see is the body, and that it's not moving. And um, with we see our loved one buried, and because of that, we struggle to keep in mind that something else is going to happen, that, that God is going to come and rescue that person that then lays in the grave. I have two daughters, one's three and one's two, and uh, the, if, you have a, if you know three and two-year-old girls, you know that they love princesses, and what I, 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 really, I really like that my kids like princesses, not because... You know, I want them to like buy this into this Barbie dream where like this princess is beautiful and that's why I love her. Um, my girls like princesses, I think, because they like this idea of the royal family. You know, like my daughter will say, I'm Princess Georgia and she's Princess Bonnie and Mama is the queen and Daddy is, is the king. Right. And this is this is how our little kingdom of our house works. And but what I what I really love about my daughter's loving princesses is in every good princess story. There's always someone that comes to rescue the princess, right? Yeah. Like it's, like it's not really a princess story if there's not like a knight or a king or a prince that comes to rescue this damsel in distress, this princess in, success, in, in distress. And sometimes it can be a girl, okay? So they can be doing the rescuing of the guy, okay? But um, what I love to tell my daughter, especially when it's bedtime and we read a story and it has to do with a princess, and she says, Daddy, I, I'm a princess. 
And I say, honey, you are a princess. Did you know that you're really a princess? And did you know that there's actually someone that will come and rescue you? And that will take you to be with himself forever. And his name is Jesus. And you get to be part of his royal family now. What she has tapped into as a three-year-old has a lot more bearing in reality and where we're going and what God's doing in the world than the stuff that we tend to be um, fixated on every day. That This is a real story that Jesus is coming to rescue us. Paul wrote this letter to a church in Thessalonica. Therefore, it's called Thessalonians, of course. And um, this is the problem. The people were new Christians. There was really only new Christians at this point. I mean, this is a new thing that was happening. And they knew that, uh, they knew that Jesus was going to come back. They started getting scared because people in their church started dying. And they were like, well, what about these people that died? They're going to miss when Jesus comes back and they're going to miss everything. And they were really sad and they were grieving about that. So Paul writes to them and he's encouraging them. And look what he says. Uh, look in verse 16 on, on your sheet. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus is coming to rescue, and there's going to be this loud sound. Um, I think about the return of the king, and um, which is a Lord of the Rings book and movie, for those of you uninitiated into the Lord of the Rings world. And um, if you remember, if you've seen seen The Return of the King, I'm geeking out with like 15% of the people in the room. It's okay. And that was a great sneeze. And, um, and if you remember, the, uh, the, or, the, the armies of Sauron, they're there in front of Gondor. They're on the Pelennor fields, right? And they're taking over Gondor. There's like a sea of these bad guys. They're real bad, ugly guys. And as the sun rises, these people from Rohan come on this hill, right? They're all these epic horses, and they have this long, awesome... Blonde hair, right? And, and they come and they, and they sort of take these long lines. And Theoden, who's their king, and Eomer. Is anyone feeling me on the Sword of the Ring stuff? Okay, okay, all right, thank you. Yes. Um, I was worried I lost everybody. Um, they come with the sunrise, and, and their king, Theoden, he, goes, he has this awesome part where they all have their spears, and he comes down with a sword, and like he hits all their spears with a sword so hard and awesome. And he basically says, he says, fear no darkness, the sun rises, ride to ruin, and the world's ending. And then they blow this horn, it's like, right? And they all scream, and there's this awesome yell, and then they, they, just, they go into battle on the side of these orcs, and the look on the orcs' faces is great, because they're just totally freaked out by these guys that are just like prepared to die, and they're just coming in full force. When Jesus comes back, He's coming back into the darkness with the enemies of God sort of arrayed against God. And it looks like they're winning. And right at the dark, you know, it's always darkest right before the sunrise, right? Jesus comes right with the sun to his back rising and he's coming to put the world to right. And there's a huge shout and the sound of a trumpet. And Jesus comes to fix everything and to rescue his people. That's the reason why when you watch the Lord of the Rings and you watch that scene, it feels so epic. There's something in you that goes, I need that, I want that, and I think that's going to happen. And when Jesus comes to put everything to right, what that means for us, um, or it means for you if you're a believer, and again, I'm not assuming that all of you are, if you're a believer, that means that Jesus is going to take your, your soul, which he has perfected, and he's going to raise your body up, and this is really weird, okay, so understand this. Um, he's going to raise your body up and it's going to be perfect too. And he's going to put you back together. So you'll be whole and right forever. Look at that second question there when it says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? 
Um, it basically says that we're, he's going to raise us up in the end there and we'll be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Jesus puts everything back together so that we can enjoy him and delight in him forever as whole people. And we'll, we'll look next week at what that looks like, uh, what that new heaven, that new earth looks like. Um, but what I, what I want to look at now is what, what does this bodily resurrection, what is the fact that God is going, when you die, your body will be in the grave and in a sense will go back to the earth, that, you, that God is going to bring that back? What does that mean for us? Two things. Um, I think that those of you that grew up in the church and you've heard this or you're familiar with this idea, it can be easy to sort of gloss over the, this fact. But we tend to think of ourselves as very as spiritual. Like the spirit is what really matters. All kinds of religions see it that, that your spiritual side is what matters, that your body doesn't really matter as much. But what God is showing us in this passage is that God cares very deeply and intimately about your body. God is actually, is not physical, he's not material, but he cares very, 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 very much about matter, and about physical things, and about tangible things, about the earth, and about his people. Um, And if God cares deeply about your body, that means, to state the obvious, that your body is important. That your body matters as much as your soul matters to God. And religious people of all kinds tend to devalue the body. And it kind of looks one, like in one of two ways. They, they did this back when Jesus was around, and we do it now. Um, on the one hand, some of us go, I'm embarrassed of my body, sort of ashamed of it. It's kind of dirty and wrong. And so what I'll do is I'll kind of hide it. And I'll play it down. Imagine in, in the really religious way, like imagine like a monk, you know, and he's like sort of whipping himself, you know, because he's trying to bring his body under submission. He's not really eating good food. He's living with just the basics because he's saying my body, and in a sense, my body is a prison that needs to be escaped. Or imagine some guru sitting on top of a mountain. He's not eating. He's exposed to the elements because his body doesn't matter. Right? The spirit is what really matters. And, um, Maybe it doesn't look that religious to you, but I do know this for certain, that the vast majority of the people in this room are embarrassed by their bodies. Uh, In some way, your body feels icky to you. Maybe someone has made your body feel icky. Um, Maybe your body isn't quite what you want it to be. And so you are ashamed of it and you're embarrassed by it. And so you cover it up and you want to hide it. Um, This is not... A conversation on modesty, by the way. I'm all for modesty, okay? If you want to get the number one apologist on one-piece bathing suits who's standing in the front of the room right now, and for guys to, like, lift up their bathing suit, because nobody needs to see that, thi- that like, not that thing, but, like, that V-shaped thing <laughs> that you're trying to lead with. Like, look, I've got the V thing, like the Abercrombie model has. Um, so this isn't about modesty per se, Because I suspect that what happens when y'all are embarrassed by your body and want to cover it up, and I'm speaking particularly to ladies, but a lot of gentlemen as well, um, I don't think that comes from a place of, I want to make sure that other people are sexually pure. It comes from a place of deep insecurity and fear that if someone sees your body, they won't like you. And um, I'm, of course, generalizing. 
But there's good news for you if that's you, if you identify with that at all. Because God isn't ashamed of your body. He isn't embarrassed by your body. He isn't kind of poking and prodding and thinking, it could be better. And what God wants to do with you is bit by bit allow you to delight in him and in his creation with your body. And to embrace and enjoy the physical things that he has made for us to enjoy. Food and drink and sexual intimacy in a marriage. Those are good things that God wants for you. Um, one of my favorite things about Frozen, again, there's a lot of princess action that goes on in my house. Frozen is like my favorite movie, besides Jaws, my actual favorite movie. And um, that one's for free. And uh, one of the great things about Frozen is how Elsa struggles with her power, right? At first, she's very embarrassed by it. Conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know, right? <laughs> what do you like? This is how it goes. Um, uh, I know because my daughter, like even in my dreams, is singing it to, in my ear. Um, but what does Elsa find out at the end? Like at the end, does she just like get rid of her powers and so she's okay and she lives happily ever after? No. At the end, Elsa understands that love controls her power. And if she is caught up in this greater story of love, she's actually able to use her power and enjoy her power and bless other people and delight in her power. It's not running away from something. It's, it's embracing what God has given you in your body. Um, so some of you are embarrassed and ashamed by your body. Um, the other extreme is this idea that what I do with my body has nothing to do with my spiritual self. Okay? So you use food or sex or alcohol or whatever else um, any way you want to. And you really just try to ignore the fact that it has something to do with your emotional and spiritual life. Um, it kind of looks like, gentlemen, endlessly sculpting yourself in the gym. I like the gym. Clearly, I don't go as often as I could. Um, you weren't supposed to laugh at that. Black is very slimming. And because uh, um, you want to have great pecs, you know, when you got to take the shirt off. You want everyone to recognize and be drawn to you. Ladies, it looks like maybe going to the gym a lot. Maybe it looks like skipping a meal, skipping a couple meals um, so that you can have a great thigh gap. If you're trying to develop the thigh gap, um, I, I mean, um, that is just, that's not freedom. Um, what's happening there? When we focus on our body in that way, is we're using our body as a sexual attractant. I mean, we all know that this is what's happening, right? I'm using my body to take control of finding the person I want to find or the people that I want to find. Um, and what you're doing, if you're, if you're a believer and you say, like, yes, I'm a Christian, you're trying to achieve something with your body that you say you don't believe spiritually. You say, I believe that Jesus accepts me as I am. That he wants the best for me um, and that he's for me. But with my body, I need to sculpt it endlessly until it's perfect and then I will be provided for. He provides for me without even asking. But I need to sculpt my body so that I can get the intimacy and acceptance I need from a guy or from a girl. Um, David Bazan is one of my favorite songwriters. Um, 
he's a great dude. But he's got this great song called, and I've quoted this before, but um, when they really get to know you, they'll run. That's a great song title. And um, that's what we're all afraid of, right? Um, he says, I don't like girls the way they are, so shave their legs and make them look like movie stars. Then we can pretend it's natural. And he says, put on whatever makes you attractive. If it's not you, then do it for the sake of fashion. Your friends, or I'd say boys, like a certain you. That's who you've got to be. What you're doing with your body is you're saying, I need to bow down to this person. And what you're saying spiritually is that I only bow down and worship God. And those things can't work together. You will find a lot of dissonance in your life. Or we use um, the bodies of others in a way that's against what we say we believe as, as Christians. Um, we say everyone has inherent value because they're created in the image of God. But when I turn on the computer and I look at people doing things with their bodies, it's just bodies. Right? They don't, they don't need to have a soul. They don't need to be a person. They just need to perform certain functions for me with their body. Um, and so we devalue people. Or we hook up with people. Um, when you hook up with someone, what you're basically saying is, I don't really want you or a relationship with you. I just want your body for a little while. Um, and so we devalue them and we devalue ourselves. Or you're in a relationship and you say, I really care about you and love you. Um, and that's why I'm having this physical relationship with you outside of a marriage. And to me, having sex with someone and just being able to break up and walk away doesn't feel a whole lot like love. It feels like a taste test. Um, and this is not coming from someone that, that crushed all these things. Um, it's coming from someone that is married to someone that loves me and has received a lot of healing um, from that intimacy? Are you using someone else's body in a way that devalues them? Um, and here's this is what it all comes down to. Is it possible that you're struggling spiritually or emotionally um, because you think that your body doesn't matter that much? For some of you, it could just look like you never sleep and you eat terrible. And when you go home for Thanksgiving, you sleep for like 46 straight hours. And your parents think there's something wrong with you because there is something wrong with you. Um, God cares deeply for your body. And he's coming again to make it perfect. And in the meanwhile, he wants you, he's showing us how to use it for good, how to love others. And look, we have complicated relationships with our bodies. I get that. Me too. Um... But just because that's the case now doesn't mean that that will be the case forever. God loves your body, cares for it. And the second thing, and this will be quick and we'll wrap it up. The resurrection of the body is a much-needed reminder to us that death is not the end of our lives. Um, you guys know Pharrell, right? Um, the guy, Pharrell, with the big hat. Okay. Um, did you guys know that Pharrell was in two bands before he was Pharrell? Okay. Does anyone know what they are? He was in the Neptunes, right? How do you guys not know this? And he was in a band called N.E.R.D., right? It's a great band. You should listen to them. But it stood for No One Ever Really Dies. Anyway, sidebar comment there. Um, Our physical death is not the end of our lives. Some of us are very familiar with losing a loved one. Some of you guys know very intimately what that feels like. Um, Some of you guys are considering seriously um, not wanting to live anymore. And so you know what that feels like as well. 
And it can be really hard in that moment to keep our eyes on the happy ending, that something is going to happen, something's going to change. Quick, quickly, look with me in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask... In, oh, wait, that's not it. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul's saying, look, believers that have died, it's so temporary that we might as well call them asleep. Because Jesus is coming again, he's going to wake them up. But notice he doesn't rebuke them for grieving. He doesn't say it's wrong to grieve or it's wrong to have grief. He says, I don't want you to grieve like someone that doesn't have hope. Um, the other day, Tim kind of said some warheads. He shared warhead with me. And um, are you guys familiar with the candy, the warhead? It's a terrible, terrible candy. And no one should ever eat it. Um, when he gave it to me, I was actually grieving. Um, it was a terrible pun. And uh, the thing about a warhead, the thing that makes you able to endure the bitterness is knowing that at the end of it, there's sweetness, right? And all Jesus is showing us here in this passage is death is very bitter for us. Um, the idea of continuing to live when we're overwhelmed is very bitter for us. But Jesus is coming to provide sweetness and life, and that's not going to be the end of the story. Um, there's a great hymn called For All the Saints, and this, the verse, one of the last verses goes like this. And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long... Steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again and arms are strong. Hallelujah. If you will listen in God's word and others that will talk to you about Jesus in prayer, you will begin to hear the sound of the trumpet. That Jesus is going to come and rescue us and make everything right. Um, last thing, Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite writers and uh, when she was uh, like 30, she got lupus. I don't know if many of you guys know what lupus is. It's an incredibly debilitating disease. And it killed her at the age of 39. She was unmarried. And she was really at the height of her powers, of her literary genius. And she died at 39. And she was in much, much, much pain um, leading up to it. And someone asked her, she was writing a friend about her lupus. She was a Christian. And I love what she said. She said, with one eye squinted, I can count it all a blessing. In the midst of what we're going through now, with one eye squinted, can we begin to look at what's coming in Jesus, that he's our hero, and he's going to rescue us. If you're overwhelmed, if you're confused, if you're despairing, um, Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for the hope that we have in Christ that our best days are not behind us, but the best is yet to come in Christ. Give us hope. Um, give us joy. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.